This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. It was the last day of the Supreme Court term, and the court issued decisions in two of its most controversial cases and perhaps the most far-reaching of the Trump presidency. The clashes forced the court to navigate politically polarizing and constitutionally weighty issues months before the presidential election. In a pair of 7-2 decisions written by Chief Justice John Roberts, the court backed a New York grand jury's bid for President Trump's financial records while blocking, for now, House subpoenas. It was a tactical victory for Trump that will in all likelihood keep his personal financial records out of public view through the November election, although in tweets the president framed the rulings as a loss imposed by his enemies. Joining me is Leah Littman, a professor of constitutional law at the University of Michigan Law School. Can you tie the reasoning in both cases together for some overarching principles? Sure. So the reasoning in both of the subpoena cases was, in important respects, a win for the rule of law. The Supreme Court rejected the president's broadest argument that the president's personal financial records can never be subpoenaed while the president is in office. The Supreme Court also rejected the Department of Justice's slightly narrower version of that argument, which was that grand juries or Congress had to make heightened showings of particular need in order to obtain the president's financial records, even from third parties rather than the president himself. However, the outcome in both cases was practically a win for the president because the president has sought to keep his financial records private, particularly in the lead-up to the 2020 election. The Supreme Court in both cases directed the lower court to review the lawfulness of the subpoenas under a more case-specific legal standard that allowed the president to raise challenges as to why these particular subpoenas interfered with his ability to carry out his duties. Because that directive will tie up these subpoenas in further litigation for the next several months and in the lead-up to the election, none of the president's financial records will become public before the 2020 election. Would you describe either of these as landmark decisions on presidential powers akin to, let's say, the Nixon tapes case or the Clinton-Paula Jones case? I would not go so far as to say either of these decisions are landmark opinions on presidential power. So the New York grand jury case in particular was very much an affirmance of the court's prior decision in the Nixon-Watergate case, which said that a federal grand jury could subpoena even the president's official documents in furtherance of a criminal process. I do think that the congressional subpoena case is a significant presidential power decision in that it preserves the ability for presidents to delay, if not prevent congressional oversight of presidential activity. And I say that because the standard that the court gave is, in its articulation, similar in some important respects to the heightened showing of need that the Solicitor General said Congress needed to show in order to obtain the president's financial records. And by allowing presidents to raise these challenges to subpoenas, the court is handing the executive branch a potent legal tool 
to delay, again, if not prevent, congressional oversight of the presidency. I want you to talk a little bit about how the chief justice approached his opinion in the case involving the New York prosecutor and whether there was any rebuke of the idea that a president has absolute immunity. Yes, so the New York grand jury case is absolutely a decision that rebukes the president's argument that he was entitled to what the president's lawyers called temporary immunity from investigation. The president's argument was that New York prosecutors and the grand jury could not even investigate crimes in which the president might be implicated. Again, the subpoena in that case was directed to a third party, an accounting firm, rather than the president himself or the president's personal records. And the president's sweeping argument was that there could be no investigation of any activity in which the president might conceivably be implicated or the target. The court rejected that argument. It rejected the idea that when the president is possibly implicated in or the target of an investigation, the state had to make a heightened showing of need in order to enforce a subpoena. So, yes, the Supreme Court did definitively reject the president and the Department of Justice's Leah, Trump's two appointees, Justices Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, were in the majority in both the cases, but wrote concurring opinions. Tell us about those. Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Gorsuch actually concurred separately. That is, they did not join the reasoning of the Supreme Court's opinion in the Vance case. Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Gorsuch agreed that the lower court should examine this subpoena in light of a different legal standard. But the standard that they directed the lower court to apply gave, let's say, a stronger sum on the scale in favor of the president. Justices Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito dissented. How did they explain away the prior cases, the Nixon tapes case and the Clinton-Jones case? So what they did with those cases was say that both of those cases recognized that the presidency and the office of the presidency were special in some ways. And even though the Nixon tapes sought potentially official records of the presidency, similar concerns about the effect on the offices of the presidency existed even where a party sought personal information of the presidency. And so they abstracted away from those cases the recognition that presidents were special. And they applied that principle to create rather sweeping protections for the president that I think under any fair reading were inconsistent with the bottom line of Nixon and Clinton versus Jones. So this has to go back now to the district court. What arguments could the president make to stop the accountants from turning over the records? I think that the arguments as to the New York grand jury will come in two categories. First, we'll focus on whether the subpoena is overbroad. That is, whether it requests information that isn't really necessary to the criminal investigation that the grand jury is doing. The second will focus on more specific arguments about how this subpoena and its enforcement 
might impede the president's ability to carry out particular constitutional duties. Is it possible, you know, that the Nixon tapes case took three months and Bush v. Gore 36 days. So is it possible that the New York prosecutor, Cy Vance, could get the court to do this on an expedited basis and could get those records well before the election? It is possible that Cy Vance will ask the court for expedited consideration of the arguments on the subpoenas. However, even if the DA convinces the lower federal trial court to move on an expedited basis, it is likely that the president would challenge any decision that is favorable to the New York District Attorney in the Court of Appeals. And let's say that the Court of Appeals also agrees with the New York District Attorney. The president could then challenge that decision in the Supreme Court. And to my mind, it is extremely unlikely that the DA could convince all three levels of the federal courts to proceed with sufficient expeditiousness that the entirety of the proceedings will wrap up in the next two months. So let's turn now to the congressional subpoenas, which even during the oral arguments, it seemed as if the justices were concerned about how broad they were. What was Roberts' reasoning in his opinion? In the congressional case, there too, the Chief Justice rejected the President and the Department of Justice's broadest challenges to the congressional subpoenas. The court said it was not going to hold that Congress could never subpoena the personal information of the presidency. And the court also said that it would not apply the Solicitor General's heightened standard for Congress to demonstrate why the particular subpoenas and the particular information were necessary. However, the Supreme Court directed the lower court to apply a legal standard to the subpoenas that was more attentive to possible separation of power concerns with congressional subpoenas for presidential information. That standard might possibly differentiate between the different congressional subpoenas at issue in the case, because some of the congressional subpoenas sought the president's personal information as representative of a case study or larger problems in a regulatory regime. Other subpoenas sought the president's financial records because there was a particular need to find the president's financial information in particular. So, Leah, why did the court decide to have a a tougher standard there when this all concerns information before he was president? So the court gave as reasons the prospect that even subpoenas for personal records might impede the president from carrying out duties of the president's office. If particular records were, let's say, extra burdensome to obtain or particularly private, then the Congress might not be able to get that information because obtaining that information might hurt the office of the presidency. Similarly, given concerns about congressional abuse of subpoenas, the Chief Justice said there had to be some demonstration that subpoenas were not overbroad and didn't seek too much information. And that standard, I think, calls into question the congressional subpoenas that seek the president's information as representative of a larger problem. Because why might you need the president's information in particular when you can obtain and request other parties' information that would also be representative of a potentially larger phenomenon? Why did Justices Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito find that that was not 
sufficient? Why did they dissent tier two? I think that both Justice Thomas and Justice Alito believe that the majority standard is not sufficiently protective of the office of the presidency and that it renders the office vulnerable to what they would describe as presidential harassment or congressional abuse. And so they would allow the president to raise more broadside challenges, such as, well, these subpoenas in general interfere with my ability to carry out the duties of my office without making any more specific argument or showing. Do these opinions and the term as a whole show that Justice Roberts is in control of the court in more ways than one? Oh, yes. The Chief Justice, this is the Roberts Court in many ways. He is the Chief Justice with the assigning power for the opinions. He is the Chief Justice with the ability to schedule cases when they are argued. He is also the court's immediate justice. And so he has considerable power to shape all of the court's decisions. There's been talk since Justice Gorsuch wrote the LGBTQ decision and Justice Roberts wrote the abortion decision and sided with the liberals in those cases. There's been, you know, talk from conservatives that we've got to find a way to to get justices that are guaranteed, basically, to vote the conservative way. And it seems like this case may add fuel to that movement. Does it show that you just can't get a justice that'll stay in in the line that you think he or she should be in? I think that perhaps the Trump administration and the conservative legal movement were a little overconfident in what they could ask this particular Supreme Court to do. But I also think it would be a mistake to suggest that the decisions this past term mean that politicians are incapable of selecting justices whose votes they can predict. In many of the cases, either the outcome or the legal reasoning that the justices adopted very much track the views of the political party that appointed the justices. So even though Justice Gorsuch offered the opinion that found Title VII prohibited discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, he specifically noted that he was not deciding whether entities with religious objections to LGBT equality could be subject to that non-discrimination provision. Rather, in other decisions this term, He stated that other pieces of federal law, whether federal statutes or the Constitution, required the federal government to exempt entities with religious objections from non-discrimination provisions or civil rights statutes. And so I think that in many respects and in many decisions, the justices voted consistent with the views of the political party who appointed them. Thanks so much for being on Bloomberg Law, Leah. That's Leah Littman, a professor at the University of Michigan Law School. And that's it for this edition of Bloomberg Law. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcasts. You can find them on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show weeknights at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.